You're listening to the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, the show for people who leverage the latest in technology to solve agronomic problems. If you're interested in on-farm application of precision ag technology, you've come to the right place. Get ready as we unpack the insights and experiences of the agronomic minds leading our industry forward. Today on the SWAT Agronomy Podcast. I've had a lot of guys say, oh no, I just want to go back to basics on my farm. Uh, Variable rates is doing things, the basics right, and then thinking about it in a more spatially variable way. So it's not really changing what you do, it's just make sure you do those components correct. Precision agronomist and soil water specialist Jonathan Freeman joins the show to talk about SWAT water, irrigated specialty crop agriculture in Southern Africa, and the importance of water management to really every other aspect of agronomy. If this is the first time you're listening to the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, welcome. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm a communications consultant and ag tech geek and the host of the show. I've partnered with the SWAT Maps team on this podcast, and we hope you'll join us as we explore where the latest in agronomy meets the latest in technology. Today, Jonathan Freeman introduces us to SWAT water and the significance of this tool, especially in irrigated agriculture. Before joining Croptimistic, Jonathan worked as an in-house agronomist for a large sugar company, where he also managed their precision ag program. He has nearly two decades of experience in water resource management and has worked in multiple countries in Southern Africa, as well as New Zealand and Australia, so he's really familiar with agriculture around the world. This is really a fun episode where we'll dive into irrigated agriculture, including specialty crops like sugar, avocados, and macadamia nuts. But even if that's a little bit different from agriculture in your area, I still think there's plenty of nuggets in here for everyone. We start the conversation, though, by talking about some of the differences between agriculture in Southern Africa and agriculture here in North America. Precision agriculture takes many different forms in the African context. And the reason being is because of the sort of amounts of labor that we've got available in this market. So I think what's been nice about joining a North American company for me is that um, you find that the technology has almost been forced upon North America a lot quicker than it has been in an African context. Um, In an African context, the cost of labor and the cost of doing things the old way or manually, you know, using people has never really forced uh, farmers here into precision agriculture. Um, And in some cases, you just ended up with some farmers within the sugar industry have gone to smaller and smaller field sizes to achieve the equivalent of precision agriculture. You know, instead of being more efficient with equipment, they've managed more intensely through people. And I think that's the main difference between, so say, Southern African agriculture. But it does depend on the market you look at. So I'd say the the tree crops and the, and the high value crops have very much gone to more precise means because of the high value nature of that crop. And also some of the pressures that have come from offshore, such as, you know, global gap and other controls, which have, have forced better ways of doing things. And most of the Southern African sort of agricultural market is going through that now, where you're looking at more precise means, and mostly because of the way in which we're starting to trade more and more in a global context. So I think the playing field is being leveled, and um, the key difference is that uh, we probably do things in the Southern African space a little bit more simplistically than you might find in the North American space. So it's a nice mix of technology, but um, we certainly learn from each other, which is quite a nice space to be in. Yeah. 
And how did the genesis of SWAT Water come about? So I started chatting to Corey um, probably three years ago about uh, SWAT Maps and actually introducing it into South Africa. And I think um, we started chatting just on social media and, uh, you know, I didn't realize he'd started developing a SWAT water project. And then he mentioned it to me on social media. And so we basically organized a conference call just to discuss what it was all about. And it was a nice next step for me in the space in which I've been working in. I've done a lot of software development in the past, uh, you know, where I've done the project management side and worked with a lot of software developers uh, specifically in the agricultural space. So what Corey wanted done was a nice mix of my technical background as well as my project management experience. And so I could jump in quite easily into their team. I also really liked how, you know, the whole company has sort of been remote. It kind of superseded this whole COVID era. You know, everybody's worked remote in that company and um, you have a head office in Saskatchewan. But generally, staff are, you know, spread right across Canada and now globally. And I think it leads to a very sort of mature relationship between, you know, central business and the staff itself. You kind of... Uh, left to drive the business yourself and to drive your your own agendas, which is very refreshing. Um, and I think it's quite a healthy way to work. For somebody who's never heard of SWAT water, maybe they're listening because they're familiar with SWAT maps, you know, related to soil. What exactly is SWAT water from? Let's start with just the basics and we'll kind of go from there. Well, I think the key is, is what was happening in the Canadian market is that uh, Corey was canvassing a number of his clients and having discussions around you know, although we've done mapped uh, soil variability within a field, what really was driving the sort of nutrient availability or what was driving that variability within a field? And I think the consensus at the end of the day is that your soil moisture level and also how that soil moisture interacts with your various soil types and soil conditions is really what is driving, you know, your crop productivity. That was the question that got raised, and a, a number of clients were asking Corey, now that we've got a SWOT map and it tells us where we've got wet areas and dry areas, you know, could we add on a tool and could we add in soil moisture probes, which would then would quantify, you know, how much water is available from different locations. So that, that really was the segue from SWOT maps to then include SWOT water as a measure of saying, well, how much water is available? And... The next step, I guess, is to really dive into how that impacts yield. So now that you've got a number to work with, you can start looking at different parts of your field and, and developing thresholds around stress points, crop stress, and also uh, nutrient requirements. You know, should you fertilize if it's too dry, you know, and what that cutoff point is. So that, that's really how it came into the picture. And how are you kind of getting to water availability? You know, what data points give you that information where you could actually map it at a field level? So one of the key things I think that added value to the SWOT mapping process, when SWOT water came along, if you look, you know, a lot of agricultural applications, whether it's soil moisture management or whether you're looking at fertilizer application or whether you're looking at herbicide application, one of the key factors that, that governs the success or failure of any management approach is sort of soil texture. And if you, if you, what's what water added is that we would gather using the same positions that were the soil sampling positions that were recommended by the SWOT mapping approach. And we tacked on soil texture analysis, uh, which is laboratory analysis, as well as organic matter analysis. And um, the zone based approach, whereby we're now analyzing soil texture and organic matter, 
allows you to, to build a picture of the volume of water available within a particular zone. And also the range at which, you know, a crop is going to have plants available water, which is not going to stress the crop. That soil texture data and organic matter data allows you to develop those ranges for, you know, crop condition and I should say soil moisture condition. And so walk us through how a farmer would benefit from swap water. What what are they going to do? They're looking at a map that says, here's the available water in each of my zones. Give us kind of the now what. It was actually quite interesting. I was with a grower this morning and uh, I was discussing, it was sort of a, outside of a North American example, I guess it was avocados, um, which you might find in California and, and those sorts of places. But what the grower was discussing with me is the number of soil moisture probes he wants to put in his particular orchard in order to be able to get a good idea how much water he should put on during different climatic conditions. Now, the key thing is, as he said, look, he could never have enough soil moisture probes. And the, and the reason for that is that the probes, you know, basically are a point and you're measuring the soil moisture condition in the immediate vicinity of that probe. So with the understanding that most fields have got, you know, soil variability across them, that means that you're almost inferring, you know, irrigation requirements from a single point across a field. And what Swap Water's done is, is basically allow you to leverage purchasing, say, a single probe or possibly two probes or three probes for an irrigated field. And it allows you to understand where should I put my probe in the first place. And then you can also develop relationships between Swap Water and what the probe is actually recording itself. So as a grower, suddenly a grower is empowered with a lot better decision-making tool. You know, instead of trying to guess where to put a soil moisture probe, which means you almost guessing your irrigation requirements if you don't get it right, you end up with a, with a much better result. Over and above that too, I think you should take it one step back even further. You should be using the SWAT water and SWAT maps as a tool for understanding your field before you even establish. So I find a lot of growers are retrospectively using these tools because they've already got a field and they've already got a crop established. In the grain crops, the, the benefit is, is that you restart every year. So you can really use that thinking. In some of the tree crops, you know, once you've established a crop, the mistakes you made are the mistakes you've made and you've got to live with them. So in those long-term crops, it becomes even more valuable and more important to do that thinking and that planning up front. And I think that's where SWAT water and SWAT maps really allows a grower to do some very critical thinking you know, before he makes decisions that are expensive, involving, you know, drainage or field layout or crop establishment or even variety choice. So that's where it really adds a lot of value to the grower. It's very much an empowering tool once the grower has that data. Without that data, I find a lot of growers can't answer those questions, and so they ignore them. As soon as they've got that data available to them, then they can start to address those questions and deal with the issues that are posed. And so uh, a grower might still use a soil moisture probe, but now they know where to put it so that it actually represents that particular zone. Is that right? Absolutely. So I think there was an example which I came across the other day where we had a, a, a macadamia orchard and um, basically the field layout was just, this is a 10 hectare block or about a 22.5 acre block. And that layout was just superimposed on top of whatever soil was there. When I spoke to the grower, he had one part of his orchard that had heavy clays and he had another part of his orchard 
you know, probably two-thirds of it was lighter, sandier soils. But a single irrigation regime was superimposed on that entire block. And the end result was that you ended up having non-fruit bearing in the heavy clay soils, which were consequentially being over-irrigated. And I think that, that's the impact of it, is then you've got to retrospectively try and fix that. Very interesting. So they're going to use the swap map and the soil samples and maybe the moisture probe like we talk about. And uh, are they going to be able to tell, you know, inevitably because of variations in the field, if they only have sort of one valve to turn the irrigation on, turn the irrigation off, or let's say it rains, are they going to be able to tell sort of where that water flows when it's in an area of maybe surplus at any given time? So SWAT water gives you some guidance in, in that regard. So what we have built into it is it's basically an hourly time step. So when you plug in a climate station, which is providing you with evapotranspiration data, rainfall data, you know, wind speed, direction, humidity, all of that, you plug that data in. And then based on that data, you're able to understand how the crop is responding you know, to available moisture. And so you can pick up whether the crop is stressed or not stressed. The key component, though, is overland flow. And so with SWAT maps, we include topography data, and it's a big part of improving on and adding value to the EC data that we capture as part of the SWAT mapping process. And now when you take that topography data and you take into account how water moves through a landscape, the SWAT water module has now built in, it's a relatively simplified sort of model, but it allows you to interpret and look at uh, soil moisture dynamics relative to topography as well. So it does take into account some overland flow, and it does take into account some subsurface flow. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like in irrigated agriculture, we're reaching to the point where we're kind of ready for more variable rate irrigation, right? Can you maybe talk about that technology, where it's at in terms of adoption and, and kind of now that we know how to sort of be precise and have precision in, in our irrigation, we just need the ability to sort of implement that, right? Absolutely. So I think, you know, maybe I'll start with the whole SWAT maps approach. And, and what SWAT maps does really nicely is that you've got a a single data set, and I think what's happening nowadays in precision agriculture is that growers are being bombarded with a whole host of different service offerings. And one of the key things and the very nice thing about a SWAT maps and the SWAT maps process is that if you start your journey and you've got, say, a brand new field that you're going to establish an irrigated crop in, you know, once you've scanned it, you understand your variability. But a key component of that variability and the soil texture analysis what that's going to tell you is your, your soil texture, and your soil texture is often used to drive decisions around what type of irrigation system I should put in. So where should I put my drainage? So that, that's where having that map up front is you know, the start of the journey, and the added value of that map is that obviously you can use it for your variable rate fertility requirements as well. So it's, the, it's basically the same data set that can be utilized for fertility as well as variable rate irrigation. The challenge now in the irrigation space is that, you know, you often are left with growers that have got um, irrigation systems that they're really utilizing. And in order to be able to do a variable rate application, you normally have to spend some money or, you know, it's got to be a field or an irrigation system that you're reestablishing. That is the challenge within the irrigated space is that, um, you know, a grower, it's not like you planting the crop every year as you do in grain crops and you've got the opportunity to 
you know, change that decision on an annual basis. So the key is, is that it's going to come in slowly. And where irrigation is at at the moment is you, like with some of the center pivot irrigation, you are able to do, uh, you know, nozzle by nozzle based, you know, variable rate applications. And that's solenoid controlled irrigation, which is, is where probably irrigation technology is going to go. You know, in some of the orchard crops, a very simple application, I think in that macadamia example I gave you where we had the very heavy clays on one part of the field and very light sands on the other part, a very simple application of variable rate, you know, irrigation would be simply just changing the rate at which the nozzle emits. So they had microjets in that case, which is under canopy irrigation. It's, it's just little sprinklers that spray around the root system. And um, what that allowed the grower to do was simply say, hey, well, I can change these nozzles to go at a lower rate in these locations, and he can go at a higher rate in other locations. So some systems can be adapted, some can't. But I think where it's going to go in the future is when you are replanting or redoing a field that's going to require irrigation, is being informed at the outset, and then you can make a decision on the cost benefit of variable rate. Even with center pivots, you know, you don't have to go the whole way with having solenoid-based, you know, independent sprinkler controls, you could even look at sector-based, whereby it's almost like splitting a a sensor pivot up into slices or like a pie. And so you can use the existing technology to actually apply uh, more or less water just based on the speed with which the pivot actually turns. And that technology has been around for some time now. So, you know, I think irrigation technology is expensive, so most growers are going to get there. It's just going to be when. So it's going, to, it's going to come a lot slower than, I think, changes in, say, variable rate fertilization. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, even though water is scarce, there's a little bit difference in, in the economic outlook. But uh, I think it's important to probably emphasize, you know, for and nobody in irrigated agriculture will be surprised by this, but water management is also nutrient management, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's the key that a lot of... Um, you know, irrigators forget about it. Over-irrigation means leaching nutrients. You know, either you're creating parts of your field which are volatilizing nitrogen, for example, because they're too wet, you know, um, so they're sitting in, in anoxic conditions and you, you're losing nutrient that way, which means you're also impacting yield in those locations. And I've, I've seen probably, you know, the benefits that irrigation gives. When you get it wrong, it can create a lot more problems than benefits. And so that's that's a key part of it is, is really managing that nutrient application really well. And also, I know there's kind of some pest management implications or disease management, I should say, implications from this too. Can you maybe talk about that? Yeah, well, one of the key things is, um, you know, it's certainly with sensitive crops. There's a number of applications we've been looking at here in Southern Africa, one being something called Phytophthora, which impacts a lot of orchard crops. And um, one of the key things is when you plant or establish an orchard and you superimpose it onto the surface of a field, but you don't take into account the soil variability, the issue is is that when you over-irrigate a heavy clay soil, you create an environment for pest incursion. So Phytophthora is a waterborne disease and it loves that sort of environment. So what you find is, is that you know not managing for your variability means that you're planting an expensive crop but you're almost sacrificing or expecting that part of the field to have disease levels which cause impacts on yield down the track. So, you know, often you should be able to, once you've mapped your soil, proactively manage for that. And and that's a key thing. If you go in blind and you say in your heavy soils, look, I'm just going to over-irrigate because I, I can't manage for it, 
you've also got to understand that you're going to negatively impact those parts of your field. One of the key things that's coming in now is that, um, you know, international legislation with regards to levels of certain, you know, products in a crop. So most farmers nowadays are having to test and make sure that they're the herbicide or, you know, so any control that they put in place for, say, controlling nematodes, you know, is at a level that's not going to negatively impact the fruit itself. And what that means is then, you know, whatever level is in the fruit gets passed on to the person that eats the fruit. So those controls are starting to come into place. And um, I think it's in the past, the solution was, well, there might be a chemical we can treat that for. Whereas now the market is starting to demand, a guess, a chemical-free product, which means you manage your soils better. And so it's pushing growers back into that place of managing your soils better so that you don't have to then treat for a problem. What are the biggest concerns or maybe just questions that you're getting about this swat water concept from growers and other agronomists? So I think from the nutrient side, I think the next step for us is to start looking at, you know, how we can start tying nutrient thresholds into sort of a volume of water. And I think that's that's the key is developing those. So I think most growers are, are very keen on the concept. They understand that, um, you know, soil moisture is obviously driving yield. And I think the key now is, you know, how could you then start tweaking a variable rate application based on, you know, a volume of water that you know to be present in your soil. I think when it comes to, say, uh, we've started looking at it for say disease we've had yellow aphid problems in the sugar industry and um, some of the growers i've been working at have been wanting to understand soil moisture variability so that they can understand crop stress so is the crop stressing it doesn't matter whether it's stressing from too much water or too little water basically they want to know which parts of the field are stressing and so as soon as you have quantified that you know you can use ndvi and other products to have a look at crop stress in conjunction with the swat water, which then tells you, hey, well, this was your soil moisture level at that time. And it allows you to tell you that this problem was soil moisture level related, not not pest induced. But what that's doing is if you're wanting to say spot spray to treat for a pest like that, technology like drones is allowing you then to sort of identify the parts of a field that stress first. And the idea is you can do preventative maintenance by spraying those areas or by actually inspecting those areas with your agronomist to, to look at your, your disease counts or your pest counts. And then so you can start to spot spray or target spray and treat for those conditions. So that's, that's where I can see growers really starting to utilize it, you know, in the case studies that we've gone through over the last year and a bit. Excellent. Well, I think we got to all my notes. What, what, what are we missing here in the, in the swat water story and in kind of just in general what you have going on over there? Yeah, you know, the the only other part of it was really on the decisions around your uh, choice of you know the type of irrigation you're going to go with, and I think that's a key component. You know, I've I've spoken to so many irrigation engineers who often what they do is they get pulled into a farmer's farm and he says, look, he wants to put in an irrigation scheme, and they basically are expecting the grower to work off many very very minimal data. So the soil samples they've taken is often what the engineer has to use for his design. And what that ends up is is the engineer might apply all the best principles to very few data points. And at the end of the day, you know, he's done a design with the the best data that they had available. And the key is, is that, um, you know, what we've picked up in certain instances is there was a case I came across the other day where we had very, very heavy clay soils 
And um, in those heavy, heavy clay soils, they also had salinity problems. But the salinity problems were not throughout the field. You know, the challenge is, is that in this particular case, the grower opted for, you know, drip irrigation. And um, drip irrigation, you know, is very low volume. And it doesn't allow you to sort of flush salts through the profile. And um, then the grower took a fertility strategy too on over and above that where he was fertigating. So in other words, he's putting his fertilizer in uh, through the actual the dripper tubes. And um, where you've got a field that's prone to salt, one of the key things is the connection between nutrition <laughs> and irrigation. And there you're applying a very, very salt-rich nutrient solution, which wherever the field or wherever the soil was prone to salinity issues, we picked up that there was uh, saline patches. And the end result is obviously that you end up with crop stress and it has a negative impact on your crop. So it's a key, I think, a real key take-home message when it comes to irrigation design is to, to take into account that soil variability. But the nutrient component is just as important. Don't look at it just from I'm putting water on and the crop needs 20 millimeters you know, for every irrigation event. Taking into account the nutrient components and having a good look at, say, salinity, you know, as, as one component of, um, you know, should I be irrigating differently or what's my fertilizer strategy? So, you know, it, it's very similar to in the grain crops in, in Canada where, you know, as soon as the swap maps approach got adopted, we found that a lot of the zone 10s had salinity problems. And that's the same principle just in irrigation and where you're spending a lot of money on putting an irrigation scheme in you can exacerbate those problems very quickly. So instead of it taking 10 years to, to express itself, you know, it expresses itself in three or four through that particular management approach. For the, the small amount of money, say, soil mapping costs, the value that a grower can get from a understanding of variability and then deciding you know, what irrigation strategy they want and what irrigation type they want and also field layout, you know, means that if you're looking at return on investment, it's a significant return on investment that you get simply through not having to pay school fees further down the track. And I think that that's an important take-home message. Absolutely. And maybe it's related to this, maybe it's not. But if you could kind of get on your soapbox to an audience of independent agronomists, which are the people who are listening to this show what would be, in general, your key message, your TED Talk, so to speak, to an audience of, of independent agronomists? I think it comes back to that whole question of, and it's been going around in agriculture for many years, is you can't manage what you can't measure. And that's taken two ways by growers and also by agronomists. And uh, many agronomists would look at that and say, well, they'll put many things like soil mapping into the too hard basket. In other words too difficult to do, too difficult to interpret. And then technologies come along, you know, like the swap mapping technology, and it allows you to then understand that variability. And what I'm finding with most growers is don't try and solve all of the issues and all the new questions that you're going to come across in the first season. The, the swap mapping process and, and the service that, that Croptimistic or that we basically go through really sort of looks at you know, address the big ones first and the ones that are probably costing the grower the most. You know, in the sugar industry, for example, that's fertilization. That's your biggest overhead, one of your biggest costs. And so how can you do that better? And the second one is then going to be irrigation because of the energy cost, you know, the power requirement. So that's also a big cost overhead. 
and just start breaking it down into small pieces. Don't try and look at everything at once, but start on the journey. In other words, the blinkered approach from what I can see and a question I had from a grower the other day was the fertilizer prices have gone up by 30%, but I can't afford to get into variable rate fertilization. That for me is a very blinkered approach where in five years time, you know, that grower is going to risk going out of business because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to those prices and how they're going to self-correct. And the key is, is you can do something about it. So ask the question and then see what you can do before you, you sort of close that door and say, I can't do anything about it. Well, a great way to close out today's episode. Thank you very much to Jonathan Freeman. If you want to get in touch with him, I believe he's pretty active on LinkedIn. And I'll also link in the show notes a video of the Swatwater Global launch earlier this year where Jonathan was one of the speakers. So you can learn more there if you're interested. Are you finding value in this podcast? If so, make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice and shoot, leave us a rating and review while you're there. And if you have any recommendations for guests or topics or questions or comments, please tweet them to us by using the hashtag SWAT Agronomy.